Church, good morning. It's Christmas time here at Rolling Hills, and I love Christmas. I don't know how many of you guys love Christmas. You guys, Christmas people? Okay, good, good, good. It's just something about Christmas. I mean, it really is. It's just awesome. It just seems like it's just such a change. And our Christmas series is called The Sounds of Christmas. And what I love about Christmas is it seems to engage all of our senses, right? I, I mean, you know, you think about Christmas, you think about sight, and you see the Christmas lights, and then you see Christmas trees, and some of you probably already have your Christmas tree up, or you put it up this weekend, but it just like, oh, it kind of starts to seem like Christmas, because you can see it, right? You just see it. it the smells of Christmas, you know, cinnamon, or Christmas trees, and you just kind of smell, it's just a different smell that's in the air, or the taste of Christmas, you know, and I, I, love, I love the taste of Christmas, and pumpkin spice lattes, you know, it's kind of like Christmas, you know, or or hot chocolate at just this time of year with, with homemade fudge, you know, I love that, or homemade Chex Mix, you know, it's just like, it's Christmas, you know, it just tastes like, it It just tastes different than any other season or any other time, and the feel of Christmas, right, you got the wrapping paper, you just kind of feel it in your hands, you know, you got wrapping bows, you got Christmas trees, you just, you just feel it, you know, and, and then the sounds, the sounds of Christmas, and whether it's a bell being rung by a Salvation Army volunteer who's who's collecting, you know, for the needy, and you just hear that bell, and you're like, it's Christmas, right? It's Christmas. Or, you, or the sound of a toy train, you know? If you're a parent, you probably put together the tracks at some point, but you just hear that train, you're like, ah, yeah. Or the sound of carols. I love Christmas carols, and it's amazing. Like, you're in the mall, and you're hearing Christmas carols. You're in a store, and you're just like, Jesus, Jesus. You just hear it, Jesus being all over this place. And in the sound, or the sound of ho, ho, ho by jolly old St. Nick, it's just a sound, and you're like, it's Christmas, right? I know that, you know, it just engages me, it draws me in, and it points me in a direction. What's interesting, though, is you think about sounds, it, is every big event in Scripture was introduced by a sound. I mean, you think about that. It, here's nothing, right? There is nothing that exists, ex nihilo, nothing. And into the nothing, God speaks. God speaks. Let there be let there be light, you know, let us make man. Just the words of God change everything. Speak. When the, when the children of Israel come into the promised land, there's Jericho, this mighty city, huge walls, and they're thinking, there's no way we could take this. And God just says, walk around it seven times and don't say a word. Now, on the seventh time, shout. Just shout. And into the darkness, into the nothing, just shout. And what happens? Boom, the walls come tumbling down, you know? When Jesus comes back, right, we're in this Advent time waiting for the second coming. But when the second coming comes, what's it going to be? Trumpets, the blast, the sound. And nobody will miss him. Nobody will miss him, right? I mean, Jesus is coming back. And so when God decides to send Jesus for the first time, when God decides to, to break into this world with his love and his grace and his compassion... What sound does he give? What, what sound is it? Is it a trumpet? Is it a victory dance? Is it you know, like a shout? It's a sound that might surprise you. But it's the sound of Christmas. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you up with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. First book, New Testament. We're starting there. 
Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you have a mobile device. You can access the scriptures online. You can also take notes online. Or if you have a worship guide, you can take notes there. And we'll also put scripture on the screen so you can follow along with what God's word has to say. Now when you come to Matthew chapter 1, it gives us the story of the birth of Jesus. And Matthew and Luke are the two that record the story of the birth. Uh, Mark begins with Jesus' earthly ministry out of the four Gospels. He kind of kicks into the earthly ministry side. John starts with the more spiritual side. He just says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Old Testament, the Word, capital W, Jesus, steps off the pages and into life and becomes flesh and dwells among us. And then Matthew and Luke kind of talk about the birth narrative and what happened when Jesus was born. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 17. In fact, if you're reading your daily step, this was our scripture for the day. And it's a scripture that a lot of people kind of skip over, right? Because we kind of jump to verse 18, which says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary, we'll get there next week. But I want us to walk through 1 through 17. And I think the reason we skip over is because there's a lot of hard names to pronounce. And we're kind of like, okay, you know, we kind of move on from there. But there is power in what God is saying to us. Because God's saying, listen, I want you to get this. This is important. This is important. So Matthew chapter 1, pick up in verse 1. And it says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ literally means Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the one that the whole Old Testament was pointing to, the Messiah, the one that was promised. Here is the genealogy, the genealogy of Christ. And then it goes through, and you have three different sections here. In the first one, it says Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, some of these names you may recognize. Maybe you're in Sunday school, maybe in a community group, or at some point you've talked about Abraham, and you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and God called Abraham is living in the Ur of Chaldeans, leave your people, you know, and go to a place I will show you, and I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. So Jesus of the seed of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and you kind of go through the patriarchs here. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. You recognize Judah, the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah, the Messiah would be of the line of Judah. So here we are, Jesus' line of Judah. Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Now, that's a little interesting because usually there's not women mentioned, and here we have a mother mentioned. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amnadab, Amnadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So moms are getting a lot of shout-outs here in the genealogy of Jesus. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And so you see these 14 generations, you walk through the patriarchs, and then you come to the kings. And you may remember about a year ago or so, we did a, a whole study on the kings in the Old Testament and, and just how God used these kings. And so David, kind of the big king, right? The king that everybody modeled after. Uh, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Ab Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jerome, Jerome the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehokanai and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So after the patriarchs you have the kings and then the people were rebellious against God. 
right? The people like left worshiping God, began to worship idols. And so God says, I'm going to get your attention. And as a loving parent, right, who when our kids are disobedient, we say, we don't want you to live that way. Sometimes we have to put you in timeout to get your attention. God puts the people in timeout 70 years in Babylon, but he is faithful to his promise. He redeems the people. He restores the people. But here's after the exile in Babylon. Jehokani, the father of Shatil. Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. Abud, the father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elud. Elud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, who is called Messiah. God is here. Now, I want you to see something about this genealogy. A couple of things. One, 14 generations, right? Three times you got these 14 generations. And, and 14 was a number that was like a, a biblical number for whole and completeness. Seven is this perfect number, so seven times two. Now, we know there were other people in here along the way. But God was saying, I want to make this really clear. God is saying, this is my son. This is the one from the whole Old Testament is pointing to. Every story you read, everything you've studied, everything was leading up to the Messiah coming here. Second thing I want you to see is there's four different women mentioned. Now this is incredible, okay? And, and, and ladies, I just got to tell you, praise God how far women's rights have come. Jesus did more for women's rights than anybody in history. Because back in this day, women were treated like slaves. I mean, even almost lower than slaves. And yet, what God would say is, listen, all people matter to me. All people matter to me. Women, you matter to God. You have a place. You have a right. You are called to lead and to serve. And so God's making that known and just saying, in the genealogy of Jesus, listen, I'm highlighting it. I want you to see the importance of women and not only that, but there's a Gentile mentioned, Rahab. Now, in any Jewish genealogy, there would not be women mentioned, one, and not be Gentiles mentioned. But what God was saying to us, and, and please don't miss this today, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all one in Christ Jesus. Yes. Praise God for that truth. And maybe you feel like you're on the outside kind of looking in. Maybe you've, you know, haven't figured all this out yet. Maybe you kind of feel irreligious. You know, but what God's saying is this. I'm for all people. All people matter to me. Men and women, religious, irreligious, Jew, Gentile, you matter to me. It's not an accident you're here today. God has been drawing you to himself. God's been inviting you into this relationship. God loves you. You matter to him, and God knows your name. Wow. God knows your name. Just let that sink in. Now look at verse 16. It says, And Jacob, right, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice that. He doesn't say, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the father of Jesus. He says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And what Matthew is making very clear is the divinity of Christ. Jesus, fully God, right? Fully God, the divinity of Christ. And Christ literally means Messiah. The Messiah has come. The Messiah is here. 
400 years of silence. See, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, maybe you have one page like I do that kind of separates them. That represents 400 years. From Malachi to Matthew, 400 years of silence, 400 years of the people waiting. The Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah, the one to redeem and restore. He's coming. Now we know chronologically from Nehemiah to Matthew, 400 years. And it says in verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the, notice that, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come. So what sound does God use? After 400 years of silence, out of 400 years of God just holding back and saying, guys, I'm preparing you for the Messiah. I'm preparing you for something great. What sound does he use to reveal his love and his grace to a world? And it's the sound of a cry. I mean, that's a sound nobody would expect, right? Nobody would think a cry. But God comes near. God comes near. Now, what's the purpose of a cry? Number one, it's need. It's need, right? For those of you who are parents, I mean, you know this. You hear your baby cry. We sing away in a manger, and we say, no crying he makes, but come on, really? I mean, Jesus was a baby. There were times when he was hungry and cold, and, and you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute. The divinity of Christ, but what you see here is the divinity and the humanity. The divinity, Jesus fully God, therefore he could go to the cross and conquer death, make a way for us. Jesus fully man, so that he can meet us in our need. He understands what we go through. He understands our brokenness. He understands our hurt. He understands our pain. Praise God for the incarnation. Praise God for both the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And we see that in the manger. Jesus was the only baby that was born to die. He was born to die. And every time you see a manger, you have to think about a cross. Because when Jesus was born, he came to give his life for you and for me. He came, he lived 33 sinless years. He didn't sin. He went through every temptation we faced, but he didn't sin. And he died on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. The Messiah, God, comes near. And we meet God when we respond in our need. We meet God when we respond in our hurt, in our pain, in our brokenness, in our sin, our depravity. We meet God. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, and the first person mentioned is a guy named David. David. Now David's a guy in the Old Testament, right? If you know a little bit about David, David was a guy who, who loved God. I mean, he grew up, and he, he loved God. I mean, he was writing worship songs. He wrote a lot of the psalms, which were songs, and he would sing to God. It, it, he loved God. It, and then he became the king. And God blessed him. Like every, you know, battle he would fight, he would win. He just, he just, just kind of rose up. God's hand of mercy and favor was on him. But when he became the king, he started to forget. And there came a night when the kings went off to war and David goes, ah, y'all go on and fight. I'm going to hang back here in my palace. I'm going to kick back in my luxury. It kind of became about him. And one night he was out walking around and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And instead of just taking a glance and walking away, because listen, temptation is not a sin, you know, but temptation is an opportunity to sin. David, instead of just taking a glance, takes a gaze and that gaze, and that gaze goes on for longer and longer as he watches this beautiful woman. 
And even though David knows it's wrong, he says to a messenger, hey, go get her. The messenger's like, what? Isn't that Uriah's wife? Hello, dude. You know, I mean, one of your men who's out there fighting, that's his wife? David's like, I don't care. Go get her. And David has this one-night stand with Bathsheba. And then he sends her back. And he thinks, yeah, it's no big deal. I've kind of gotten away with it, right? I mean, nobody knows. It's like, it, it, it's all right. And then the word comes back from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. Oh. And David calls out for Uriah. He says, hey, send Uriah back here. And he tries to get Uriah drunk and says, hey, go, go sleep with her. <laughs> go sleep with your wife. Spend the night at home. But Uriah has too much integrity, too much character. He says, no way, I'm not going to do it. You know what? Uh, all your men, David, are fighting for you, and they're sleeping outdoors. I'm going to sleep outdoors too. I'm going to stay out here because that wouldn't be right. Whoa. That kind of character and integrity hits David in the face. David writes a note, sends it with Uriah, that says, hey, put Uriah on the front lines, and everybody pull back, and Uriah will be killed. Uriah is killed. The word comes back. Uriah has been killed. David goes, oh, I feel so bad about that. Hey, I better go take Bathsheba to be my wife. I better take care of her. I'll bring her into the palace, and nobody will know. But God knows. <laughs> God knows our heart. God knows our need. And so God sends a prophet named Nathan and says to David, David, you man, you sinned. You blew it. You messed up. Now right here, David has the opportunity to respond. And David can either go, you know what? I did. I, I've sinned. I, I've messed up. And I'm going to come back to God. I, I'm going to leave that whole way. I'm going to come back to God. Or David can say this, forget you, God. I'm going to live my own life. Forget you. I'm going to do whatever I want to. So what does David do? If you go to Psalm 51, you see David cries out to God. David realizes his own need. He realizes his own sin. He realizes his own depravity. He realizes what God has done for him and how much God loves him. And he calls out, he says in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And then look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now he sinned against Bathsheba, right? He sinned against Uriah. But it says David realized it was against God. It was against God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You desire truth. You desire me to be honest about what's really going on. You teach me with wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And then look at verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David comes and he recognizes his sin. He recognizes his depravity. He says, God, I don't want to live like that. God, I repent. I come back to you. That's incredible. Because you see, at the end of David's life, David is known as a man after God's heart. In the genealogy of Jesus, the first person mentioned is David. 
We've all sinned, right? We've all blown it. I mean, that's not a newsflash to anybody here. There's nobody here who's perfect. But has there been a time in your life when you've just said, God, I need you? Has there been a time where you've wept over your own sin and over your own depravity? I mean, you just said, God, I'm sinful. I mean, I've made mistakes. I've messed up. And God goes, I know. <laughs> That's why I sent my son for you. I love you. You matter to me. You matter to me. But there comes a time in our lives where we have to respond. We can't just keep on living the way we're living and, and just turning our back on God. John Stott, the famous theologian, he, he said this. He said he admits that many Christians routinely confess their sins. Yet most people do not find that their confessions change them. They usually go right back to the same bad patterns of attitudes and behavior again and again. Stott argues that confessing our sins implies forsaking our sins. Confessing and forsaking must not be decoupled. Yet most people confess, admit that they did wrong, without at the same time disowning the sin and turning their hearts against it in such a way that would weaken their ability to do it again. How many times of us, we've confessed it, but then we've just gone right back to it. And God goes, listen, I sent my son because I care about you. And there has to be authenticity in our inner parts. Like David says, there has to be an authenticity to say, you know what? I, I, I may blow it, but that's not the way I want to live. I want to live for you, God. I want to know you. And God, you've come to meet me. For those of you who are parents, you, you can tell the difference between a real cry and a fake cry, right? You know what I'm talking about? You know, you're over here, you're talking with some friends, and your kid's over here, and, and their friends go, like, your, your kid's crying. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a fake cry. I know that. I mean, you know, I mean, they're fine. They're okay. They're no big deal. But also, listen, you can tell when it's a real cry, can't you? There could be a hundred kids out there playing. They're all running around, and they're playing, they're playing, and you're over here talking, having a conversation, and all of a sudden, you hear your child, and you hear that distinct cry. You know their need, and immediately out of a hundred kids, you know their cry. You're like, whoa, what's going on? And you just make a beeline right over there, and you just reach down, don't you? And you pick them up, and you're like, oh, it's okay. What's going on? You see, there's a God who meets us. When we are genuine, right? When we are authentic, when we pour out, we just, God, I need you. God, I'm broken over this. I've made a mistake. I've messed up. I've sinned in the past. But God, redeem me, restore me, make me new. Because that's what you do. God meets us there. Tim Keller, he's, he wrote this. He said, most of all, we can more immediately and more often go to God with sins, confess them, remember Jesus' sacrificial death, and relive and miniature the joy of salvation. While there always is some bitterness and grief and repentance, deeper realizations of sin lead to greater assurances of His grace. The more we know we are forgiven, the more we repent, the faster we grow and change, the deeper our humility and our joy. Wow. You see what happens is, none of us are perfect, but when we start to make mistakes now, when we've been redeemed and restored and we mess up, we immediately then turn and confess to God. We immediately then go, God, thank you for meeting me in that need. And what happens in our life is this joy of Christmas coming alive in us. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. 
But what are you doing going forward? How are you living in your relationship with God? The purpose of a cry is need. The second thing, the purpose of a cry is empathy. Empathy. We see Jesus, we see him again when he's 33 years old. We see him doing his earthly ministry and living. And then the word comes to him that, that one of his good friends, Lazarus, has died. Jesus tells his disciples, listen, Lazarus is only asleep. It's okay. So he makes his way to a funeral. How many of us have cried at a funeral, right? That's hard, isn't it? It's difficult, and Jesus shows up at a funeral. And Mary and Martha, Lazarus' two sisters, they come running out, and they say, Jesus, where have you been? And then they're hurt, and they're, they're fear. Because see, back then, women, if you didn't have a husband, or you didn't have a father, or you didn't have a brother, you didn't have somebody to protect you or to take care of you, you were vulnerable. You were in a bad way. And so here's Mary and Martha, and they're scared, and they run out to Jesus. And the shortest verse in the entire Bible, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, you want to memorize a verse of scripture right here. John eleven thirty five, 35. Jesus wept. Now I want to tell you, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but I got to tell you, it is powerful. Jesus wept. Jesus is at a funeral. Now why would Jesus weep? I mean, he knows he's going to heal Lazarus, right? He knows there's eternal life that awaits. He knows what he's getting ready to do. But why does Jesus weep? For the hurt and the pain that Mary and Martha are going through. For the brokenness that they're experiencing. For the fear that they have. Jesus meets us in our darkest time. Jesus meets us in our darkest hour. Aren't you thankful for a God who meets us there? One of my favorite Jewish practices is the practice of presence. When somebody in the family dies, then the neighbors or friends, the community, they just show up at the house. And they come and they sit. And they just weep, right? And they cry and they're just there. You know, it, it, they don't show up to kind of, you know, go through Bible verses or to tell stories. Or, it, they just, they're just present. They're just around. And there's power in presence. You know, it says in Romans chapter 12, weep with those who weep. There's, there's power. Some of you, you know this. Some of you, Thanksgiving was different because, you know, there was somebody who wasn't there. And you miss them. Some of you, you've had a mom or a dad or, or a grandparent who's passed away that you've been really close to. And, and just going, man, it's the hardest time. But what you also probably would say is this. I remember the people that were there. The people who showed up. They were there in presence or it was a text or an email or a phone call. or They were just there. I don't remember what they said. <laughs> I don't remember things they quoted. I just remember them being there, being present. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's this call to be present, to be Jesus with skin on, to just show up. And a lot of times we back away because we're going, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know if I should go to the hospital. I don't know if I should go to that person's house. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. But when you step into those moments, God's there. You just feel his presence. You just put your arm around somebody. You just give them a hug. You are there. There's empathy. There's empathy in that time, in that moment. And you feel it. And Jesus was there. Jesus was present. Sometimes our, our hearts can, can grow hard, right? And we can grow desensitized to the needs around us. But there's needs everywhere. And this call to empathy... 
when people are going through a difficult time, when people are going through a hard time. There's a call to empathy when we see things that are happening in the world and we, we see refugees and we just go, oh God, that we would step in, that we would help, that somehow we'd be Jesus with skin on. God, if I could walk a mile in their shoes and how would they be? It, and not to respond in fear, but to respond in faith. To respond like Jesus. Empathy then leads to compassion. Compassion. You see where empathy, sometimes people would say is passive because you're just present. Compassion is active. Compassion is moving forward. Compassion is stepping into the mess and then being there to do something about it. It tells us in Luke chapter 19, you have the triumphal entry and Jesus coming in on the back of a donkey and people waving palm branches, this great celebration. The Messiah, the Messiah. And then it tells us in Luke 19 that Jesus saw the city as he approached Jerusalem. And he wept over it. He wept. Now why would Jesus weep? For the spiritual lostness there. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart. For Jesus, it was spiritual lostness. Jesus came to redeem and to restore mankind. And when he saw somebody far from God, man, his heart went out to them. In the book of Nehemiah, the, the last book chronologically before Matthew, there was a guy, Nehemiah, and he was living in the palace during that Babylonian exile. He was a cupbearer to the king. Things were great. And he could have just lived in luxury, right? But the word came that the walls in Jerusalem had broken down. And it says that Nehemiah's heart was broken. It says that Nehemiah just wept. And then he didn't just weep over that. He said, how can I be involved? And he goes to the king and he says, king, i got to leave this palace because I want to be involved in what God's doing. Put me in. And so the king says, okay. And Nehemiah goes 800 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the walls in 52 days. He stepped into it and did something about it. Jeremiah known as the weeping prophet in the Old Testament. And God comes to him and says, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I know your heart's broken over a nation that's been rebellious against me, but Jeremiah, I've called you to speak. I've called you to give a word of hope and a word of truth to my people. And, he, and Jeremiah's like, I don't know, God. You know, I'm just a kid. I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing. And God's going, no, I've called you. Maybe your heart breaks over family or friends who don't know Jesus. In this holiday time, you realize, wait a minute, everybody's coming to us, you know. Well, we're going to them, and maybe God's speaking to you already and saying, hey, I want you to step in. I want you to have a spiritual conversation. I want you to share my love and my grace. And you're going, well, I don't know, God. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to respond. I don't know if I should say this. What breaks your heart? For the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, man, he wept over the church. He knew that the local church was the hope of the world. He knew if he could plant churches in different places that people's lives would be redeemed and restored because of the grace of God. And he just said, I want to be involved in that. What breaks your heart? Whatever it is, it's probably the Holy Spirit calling you to be involved. Holy Spirit calling you to make a difference. The Holy Spirit calling you to meet a need in your family or to meet a need locally in our community, to meet a need nationally, to say, I don't want to just sit back because God has called me. The fourth purpose of a cry is love. <laughs> it's just love. Has your heart ever been just so full that you just kind of just, oh, I just got to respond. I just got to respond. God's has. <laughs> Bible says, for God so, what, loved the world. That he, what, he gave. The greatest giver of all time, 
gave. And what did God give? What was most precious to him? God gave his son. God gave. Well, I believe we're most like God when we give. When, when love just comes out of our heart, the heart of a cry, just love comes out. Have you ever noticed athletes, you know, that old saying, blood, sweat, and tears? It's really that saying goes back to a pastor who preached a sermon talking about blood, sweat, and tears about Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Winston Churchill picked up on that blood, sweat, and tears, and he used it to rally a nation in World War II. It's been used so many times, but it happens. Athletes, when they win a championship, and, and then they just stand there, and they're just like, these tears start to come because they think about all the work, all the times, all the energy, their love for the game, all that they've put into it. It's just like, ah, oh, it just comes out. In your life and in my life, sometimes those tears just come, right? They just burst out of us. And, and maybe if you're a parent and, and there's times that you see your child or your grandchild or a niece or a nephew and you just watch them and you look at them and you just like, oh, you know, something in my eye. What, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just like, you, you just, there's love there and it comes out. And to think about a God who responds to us that way, to think about a God who sees you and you were so special to him. And he loves you so much that this love just comes out of his heart for you. And I believe God meets us there as well. At times when we worship, at times when we respond, at times when we pray, we just say, oh God, I worship you. My daughter Kate, she's six years old, and she told me two weeks ago, she said, Dad, sometimes I'm at church and we're, we're singing songs to God and and sometimes I just start to cry because I'm so happy. <laughs> and I said, I know. No. There's just something that happens when you're in the presence of God and you realize the depth of his love and of his grace. Guys, this Christmas, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't just rush through this season and try to get all the things that the world says that you need to get done, done. Don't just try to be everything perfect, that you have the tree perfect and the light's perfect and the cookie's perfect and all that thing's perfect. But in your heart, you miss it. You, you miss the cry. You miss the love. You miss the relationships. And you miss the God who loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to be a baby. The sound of Christmas, it's a cry. And it's a cry for you. It's a cry for you. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Maybe today is a time just of repentance. Maybe you're here today and, and listen, there's some sin that's just got a hold of you. And right now, where you sit, you just go, God, I need you. I need you. You came in the midst of my sin and my total depravity. And right now, would you just confess? Maybe for you, it's, it's been an affair. Maybe nobody knows about it. Maybe it's emotional. Or maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's gambling or pornography. I don't know what it is. But you can either turn your back on God or you can turn your face to a God who loves you and wants to draw you out of that mess. Maybe today, just the cry of your heart is, God, I need you. 
Maybe the day the cry of your heart is, God, don't let me miss it. Don't let me get distracted with the season. I want to hear from you. I want to hear the cry of a baby. And I want to know your love for me. Maybe this Christmas, God just breaks your heart for something that's going on in your family. Or with your friends or somebody at work. God calls you to be generous. Maybe it's something that's happened internationally and just God says, hey, get involved. And you say, I can't do everything. He's like, you're right, but you can do something. So Father, here we are, your disciples. And God, we're entering into a busy season. And I pray, Father, that the busyness would not keep us from hearing you. The cry of your heart for us. God, coming near into our own mess and brokenness, Father, that you sent your son. Father, I pray today would be a day of salvation, God. For some who are far from you, I pray today would be a day of reminder of what this season is really about. And God, I pray today would be a day that we bring glory to you. That we would say, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the one who has come to change the world and to change my life. I'm yours. So, Father, thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you that you love us more than we even love ourselves. And you've got a great plan for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. After the service, I'll be here. There'll be people on our staff, our pastoral care team. We'd love to talk with you. Love to pray with you. Whatever's going on in your life, listen, you're not alone. <laughs> you're not. There's a God who is for you. And there's a church that wants to walk with you. At this time, I want to invite our ushers to come forward. It's a chance for us to give back to God. You know, our God has been so good to us, hasn't he? If you're a first-time guest, all we ask is that you give us your communication card. And, and we can follow up with you and tell you what God's doing here. Also, the place for prayer requests. If you have a prayer request, tomorrow morning we will pray through every one of these prayer requests. So as a staff, we gather around the table and pray boldly for God to hear, for God to answer. For you, call Rolling Hills home. This is a chance for us to give back to him. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace and for mercy and for love. Thank you for Christmas. And God, just as you've loved us so much that you gave, Father, I pray that we would be givers and we would be generous. We love you, Jesus, and we commit our lives to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray and we give. Amen.